Things have been stuck in place for a long time in Israel and Palestine. Might 2023 be the year something changes? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Some years in history really stand out. 1914 for one, 1968 for another, and 1948 was a uniquely significant year for what is now the state of Israel. It was the official founding and worldwide recognition of a homeland for the Jews in what had previously been the Palestinian region of the Ottoman Empire. Could it be that 2023 will turn out to be another historically significant turning point in Israel-Palestine? Our guest today, Mitchell Plitnick, writes in a new essay that though in many ways the 75 years old awful and familiar sameness continues, quote, there are strong indications that 2023 is going to be looked back as a landmark year and indeed a turning point, end of quote. Wow, wouldn't that be good? Will we look back at this year as the one where things really did change and that Palestinian equality and rights took a major step forward? Mitchell Plitnick, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Mitchell Plitnick is a political analyst and writer, is also the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy. Boy, that's a good idea. His previous positions <laughs> include vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, director of the U.S. office of B'Selem, the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories, and co-director of the Jewish Voice for Peace. His writing has appeared in Haaretz, The New Republic, Responsible Statecraft, The New Arab, Middle East Report, San Francisco Chronicle, and many other outlets. And he's spoken all over the country on Middle East politics and has regularly offered commentary on a wide range of radio and TV outlets. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And here is Israel and Palestine in 2023. Israel has its most right-wing government ever with the political power of the land-grabbing settlers at a peak and the Jewish Israelis in the streets demanding preservation of an independent judiciary despite Netanyahu's authoritarian designs, and with it, people are demanding the continuation of democracy, at least for Israel's Jewish citizens. These massive protests, you say this is something Israelis could have done long ago if the political will to address the apartheid reality had been there. Please explain, Mitchell. So, yeah, the the protests, and and by no means do I want to uh, completely denigrate these protests. They are important, and and they are motivated by a a real desire from Israeli, on, on the part of Israeli Jews, to maintain their democracy. And that is, that, that's, uh, it, 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 it's a very real thing. The, the, the point here, I think, is that Israel has been moving in this direction for a long time. We've, we've seen Israel move in a more authoritarian and anti-democratic direction really this entire century. Um, and uh, that starts as it always does. Uh, when you see greater moves to, to authoritarianism, that always starts in the mar- most marginalized communities. In Israel's case, that is the Palestinians. Uh, so the, the science have been there. This has been brewing for a very, very long time. There has long been talk of the dangers of, for example, the settler movement uh, uh, becoming more influential in government, in the military, etc. 
Um, and Israelis just kind of sat back and watched it and were really largely apathetic to it outside of you know commentary and, and people sort of talking about it, but no one was out in the streets. Um, what we're seeing now is Israelis you know, getting scared that their democracy is going to go away. And so they're mobilizing every single weekend, hundreds of thousands of protesters. And when you think about, you know, a country of about 7 million people and you're getting hundreds of thousands of people out on the street every week, that is, you know, that that's a massive protest movement in terms of the percentage of the population. Um, they, they could have done this at any time. They did, in fact, uh, back in, in 2011, there were there was a wave of, of uh, social justice protests that were very uh, clearly aimed at um, the, the government's budgetary priorities. They wanted more spending on social services, on education, etc., um, and and less on things like settlements and, and even the military to some degree. Uh, but that those protests in 2011 made a conscious effort to disconnect their demands from the, the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, from anything having to do with Palestinian rights, and the protests today, um, right. although they're, they're less successful at it, are have the same aim. The, the leadership of those protests have, have worked very hard to keep the sort of anti-occupation talk outside, and, and their, their reasoning is that they want to cast a wide net uh, in, in the Jewish-Israeli Israeli public, um, but it, it's ultimately self-defeating and, and ultimately, you know, you cannot uh, uh, win democracy when the democracy is selected. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they could have done this. They can do it differently now if there's the political will in Israel to, 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 to push it that way. And that would be a much more effective course. This, the, this where they are now is doomed to failure. Selective democracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've seen that here and there. And that's, it's interesting. I mean, you're right. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people coming out all the time cannot be ignored. It's been static for a long time. It's, it's not only been tedious, oftentimes really deadly again and again and again. You mentioned that the Palestinian political system thus far hasn't been making a lot of headway. And has also mm -hmm. been static. What is the Palestinian political system, and in what ways has it been stuck? And and the fact that settlers are bolder and more aggressive than ever. What might, mm -hmm. what effect might this be ha this be having at this point in time? Well, um, I mean, to, to start with, I think it's really important to to frame that that question uh, in terms of of um, the Palestinians being a people who do not have a government. There, there's no, you know, so we talk about a Palestinian political system. There really isn't one. Um, there, there's no, and, and of course, you know, I'm not saying I use that phrase myself. So, uh, but, but there really, you know, there, there is no Palestinian government. The Palestinian Authority itself has very limited uh, power, and what power it has is entirely um, uh, by the the decree and and at the consent of the Israeli government, the, the Israeli uh -huh. occupying force. Uh, and in Gaza, you have Hamas that that essentially runs, in, in, at least in an administrative and a policing sort of way, runs the the territory. But they have no control over their own borders. People cannot go in and out of Gaza freely. Uh, for the most part, can't get in and out at all. Um, and uh, you know, so they have no true sovereignty or, or government of power. So that that's the first thing to understand. The second, as I just sort of mentioned, is that there's a split in the Palestinian uh, um, uh, bureaucracy between the West Bank and Gaza. 
Um, and this is, you know, I mean, this is, I know, I don't know a single Palestinian who does not find this just incredibly frustrating. I mean, essentially, you're talking about Fatah, uh, which is the, the main party in the West Bank, and Hamas, which, which runs the uh, the Gaza Strip, right. uh, you know, fighting over mere crumbs that are, you know, that are dropped from the Israeli table. I mean, there's more to it than that. There are ideological differences and, and strategic differences that, that they legitimately have. Uh, but most Palestinians, whoever they support, want to see these parties come together, and, and rightly so, mm. they, because as long as they're fighting each other, there's really no way for Palestinians to have any kind of significant resistance um, to the to the occupation. So that, and that's why you see more and more of these um, militant uh, armed groups flourishing uh, and, and really, you know, winning the hearts and minds of many Palestinians because they're offering some kind of at least local alternative. But again, even those groups ultimately, uh, you know, uh, until there is a national unity among the Palestinians, there's nothing they can do to really uh, resist the, the Israeli occupation and change their own future. Right, right. It's it's a divide and conquer. It, it always works. And mm -hmm. it, Mitchell, you've been at this issue for a very long time. From yeah. the vantage point where we are right now, from this vantage point, you write, it is by no means certain that the changes that will stem from the formative events of 2023 so far will necessarily be positive, but they will be mm -hmm. significant. Mm -hmm. Please say more. Yeah, um, I mean, one thing, and and you know, the article that you're that you're referring to, you know, is very predictive. You know, it says a lot about uh, you know events that have happened in 2023 and how they might be planning seeds of the future. I, I, as a general rule, I do not like to talk about the future in in Israel and Palestine, um, simply because you know predictions uh, have a tendency to go really way off off. You know, off, off the off the beaten path. Um, there's there's this is actually a, a conflict that moves uh, and changes rarely, but when it does, it's usually because of an unexpected shock. It's usually because something happens that people were not expecting. Happen. So I I don't like to make those kind of predictions, but I did hear because I think that there are there are things that are changing on the ground um, that 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 can plant the seeds for some real change. And, you know, as much as I see that there's positive ways that can go, I thought it was also important to say, look, this, this could go negatively as well. Um, is, and, and we're seeing some of the potential uh, with Israel kind of taking off a lot of the, the, the kid gloves that it had been wearing. So uh, it was always reluctant to be, to, to, to be too clearly absorbing the West Bank uh, into Israel proper and, and, and making Israel... Uh, you know, it, it, expanding Israel's borders to include much, if not all, of the West Bank. They've always been reluctant to 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 make it look that way, even if that was really the program. They're no longer very reluctant. I mean, they're they're outright saying it. They put you know they put the West Bank in the hands of the settler. Uh, Bezalel Smotrich now has, even though he's Minister of Finance, he also has an office uh, that 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 basically puts him in charge of the West Bank. Um, so, you know, his agenda is clear and he's made no secret of it that he wants to annex the West Bank. And Israel has, in fact, been doing that in, in small, subtle ways. Um, so that that's one part. And as you mentioned, the emboldening of the of the settlers uh, to get even more violent is, you know, to some extent, 
um, there, there's some level that this has been going on all along and people are just noticing it more now. But the reason that they're noticing is that they is that the settlers are even more brazen. Uh, the protection and, and I think the key point, the protection they're getting from the army and the police as they go on these pogroms in Palestinian villages uh, is being reported much more widely. This has been the case for a long time. Uh, Palestinian, if, if a Palestinian is faced with a rampaging settler and tries to defend his or herself, uh, that Palestinian will either be killed or arrested. Uh, the settler, chances are, will not face any consequences at all. Uh, maybe once in a while they do, but but for the most part they don't. So yeah. uh, that's not really a new thing, but it's become more brave. So the 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 Israeli program of trying to make things so uncomfortable for Palestinians that they will leave could conceivably with the changes that are happening, um, could take it could accelerate greatly to the point where Israel just says, well, forget what the rest of the world says, forget even what our own liberal citizens say. Yeah. We're going to we're basically just going to throw the Palestinians uh, as many as we can out of the West Bank, much as we did in 1948 uh, in, uh, within Israel proper. And, uh, you know, and just take it for ourselves. That is one possible outcome. But I, I think there's a greater chance that the outcomes will be more positive than that. Yeah, certainly, if anybody's been paying attention at all, uh, and there's so much else going on in the world, there's been a lot of violence, a lot of violence in between, uh, you know, Jewish Israelis and, and Palestinians uh, in 2023. And mm -hmm. uh, it just seems to be building and building and building. Uh, what do you mean when you say there's an obvious continuity between denying the rights of Palestinians and diminishing those rights for Jews. I, I'm not mm -hmm. sure I follow that. Is there, is there a connection you see between Palestinian rights and democracy for Jewish Israeli? How does the current situation illustrate that? So one of the things that, you know, that I mentioned earlier is that when countries become more and more authoritarian, uh, they start with the most marginalized communities, but they don't stop there. Um, they, they tend then to, uh, to not necessarily, you know, I mean, just to use a very extreme example, um, you know, fascists in, in Europe, um, you know, 70, 80 years ago were not, uh, you know, would not go from the most marginalized communities to treating their own, uh, what they accepted as their own natural, quote unquote, citizens uh, the same way. But but if you stepped out of line, you, you yeah. find your, your privileged position disappearing real fast. And that is something that we're seeing, you know, in, in Israel when these protests started really gaining steam for just as one example, um, Israeli police started using what they call skunk water. Um, which is this this just horrible uh, smelling uh, um, liquid with some sort of chemical in it that makes people nauseous and gives them headaches and it just smells like you know I mean as you as the name yeah. implies smells really really bad and it, it it's very hard you know like like getting sprayed by a skunk you can't just wipe it off of you it, it takes you know takes some work to get off this is something they've used against Palestinians they've never used it against Israelis before. Um, there were mass arrests of Israelis um, who uh, who were protesting earlier this year. That happened as well. Um, and we've seen in recent years the sort of um, 
scare campaigns that have been launched against the the quote-unquote leftists in in israel uh, these are human rights workers peace workers people who believe in palestinian support palestinian rights believe in equality for palestinian citizens etc um and yeah there there've been they there have been parts of the of the government that have actually encouraged uh, in subtle ways attacks on those people and there have been attacks on those people um and that's growing you know that that sort of thing grows worse and worse this is exactly what uh israelis who are out protesting are worried about mm. so it doesn't stay as i say you know the attack, attacks on democracy never stay confined to the marginalized community they always spread out and people who've been against the occupation in israel have been making this argument for a long time that that you can't you can't have uh uh security in Israel you can't be safe from our from your own government when that government is so it finds it so easily to deny the rights of others wow yes indeed if those for those who just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive our guest today is uh, mitchell plitnik a political analyst and writer also the uh, president of rethinking foreign policy we're talking about how he he's suggesting that 2023 may be a landmark year and a turning point in israel palestine and uh whew, mm-hmm. boy there's a lot going on and and we will see and one thing for sure israel over the years has had many different parties all trying mm-hmm. to leverage policy by their either participation or not participation uh you know working together forming bizarre coalitions in terms of this year being a turning point with the growing backlash against netanyahu's right-wing extremism is there any momentum on, dare I say, the left? Uh, you know, it, it is not. Yeah, and th- this is where I really got speculative in the article, uh, um, because there's no political movement yet in Israel among Israeli Jews um, to to revive the left that's been basically dormant for almost a quarter century now. What the 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 Jewish Israeli left was essentially decimated in 2000 after the Camp David uh, uh, meetings between uh, Bill Clinton, Mehud Barak, and uh, Yasser Arafat fell apart, and the second Intifada started. Um, Arafat, knowing that the Palestinians were not ready for that summit, asked the other two for a pledge that if things did not go well, they they not blame him for the failure all by himself. Uh, they agreed, and then they immediately broke their word. Things fell apart, and the narrative that that most Israelis got was that the Palestinians were all offered almost everything, and rather than either take it or at least come back with a counteroffer, they launched the second intifada. Right. Um, that is not that's not what happened. Um, Hussein Aga and Rob Malley, who uh, 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 both of whom were part of the negotiations. Um, and and were pretty high up people in uh, the Palestinian Authority and the U.S. State Department, respectively, tried to correct the record. But you know, for the most part, Israelis didn't get that message, and it, that that myth killed the Israeli left. There were still people who who wanted a two. They they said they wanted a two state solution, but they no longer believed that the Palestinians did. Um, they 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 had maybe the same core beliefs, but they felt that that Palestinians had betrayed them because they bought this line that that uh, their leadership and the American leadership both put out. And really, the, the Israeli left has never recovered. You have in Israel right now a Knesset 
that we know, you know, the, the majority uh, is this ultra right wing government, but even the opposition is mostly right wing parties. Mm. Um, so, you know, they, 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 there's almost no. And, and what is when the parties that are not right wing are mostly Arab parties. You know, Labor has four seats in this Knesset that, that would, and they are centrist party, not really a left wing party, at least on this issue. Uh, the Merit Party, which is the only Jewish party that you can really call left uh, in the in, in that that competes seriously for the Knesset, they didn't they didn't make it. Uh, they didn't get enough votes mm-hmm. to get into the Knesset this time. So you know, it, it, there's there's nothing immediately visible. That said, when you listen to Israeli activists and people who are active in in Merit, even in labor, uh, and, and to some extent, even in some of the other parties. Uh, when you're listening to Israeli pundits, when you're listening to just kind of the conversations that many Israelis who 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 are not, you know, incredibly right wing and, and nationalistic have, they're talking. They're starting to recognize that that the the only real way to revive a an Israeli left that would be effective is to bring Jews and Arabs together, both Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians from who are living under occupation uh, in either East Jerusalem or in the West Bank in Gaza. Um, there is some of that. And I, right now, that is a very small sort of spark. Uh, but mm. it's something that's being picked up even by, you know, sort of, uh, not just left wing. I mean, the, the the Jewish left outside of Israel has always supported something like that. The but the Jewish sort of center center left has always been kind of leery of that. And now we're we're starting to see the Jewish center left recognizes the same thing that that this needs to happen. Uh, we're saying I'm seeing more people just talk about that. More leaders. They're not necessarily coming out and saying it in public, but I'm seeing them discuss it in private. I'm hearing their words. Um, I have a, a feeling that that is something that could develop. Um, over the next five five or so years, and that would be something that emerged out of the the changes that we're seeing in 2023. Uh, interesting. So there may be some political push, some actual push to uh, uh, go for Jewish Arab equality and partnership uh, because it, of it's such a mess now. Oh, gosh, it really is. It's, it's the only way that you can have. I mean. The, the the concept of Jewish democracy is is an oxymoron. Yes, you can't have democracy that's that's specifically characterized. Uh, even if the, even if you want to say that all of the citizens are going to be treated equal, right? In reality, that's not the way it's going to play out when you're having a, a so-called Jewish democracy. Um, there are there is a struggle that that has always been part of Israel, which is between the Jewish identity and the democratic identity, and you know historically from you know from from a hundred years ago to today whenever those two things have come into conflict the jewish side has always won um i think we're starting to recognize we're starting to see more people recognize that if you want democracy even for even for yourself the only way to do that is is for it to be democracy for everyone Hmm. um you know selective democracy is apartheid that's what you know you know, people sometimes tend to forget that that in South Africa there was real democracy as long as you were white. Yeah. That that is what that was. The, those people enjoyed democracy, and uh, that's the same situation that you have now in Israel, wow. and that has to change uh, because it can't be sustained. It, it, it creates an insecurity. It creates conflict. Um, and maybe those white South Africans had democracy, but they were constantly looking over their shoulder uh, uh, because they were afraid that since they're denying people rights, that those people would get mad at them and do something about it. Imagine um, that. So, 
Yeah, looking yeah. over your shoulder. And talk about looking over your shoulder. A lot of the, I mean, APAC, American-Israeli uh, Public mm-hmm. Affairs Committee, has been really powerful. And they have, mm-hmm. the Democratic Party in the United States is kowtowed to APAC absolutely mm-hmm. forever. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams has recently made the obligatory <laughs> pilgrimage to Israel. I guess all uh, New York City mayors do that. And, you know, every candidate for every office is always looking over his or her shoulders to see what the polls are saying. And Mm -hmm. as you point out, a new Gallup poll taken in the spring of 2023 may have offered Mm -hmm. a new message from politicians' constituents that uh, when they look over their shoulders at uh, what the, the people on the ground are saying, despite the incredible power of APAC, uh, tell us about uh, this Gallup poll and, and what it may indicate mm-hmm. and what uh, the politicians may see over their shoulders. So the this poll showed that 64% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning voters um, felt more sympathy for the Palestinians than for Israel. This is an enormous turnaround. Um, and it's pretty sharp. I mean, that those numbers were, were not quite reversed, but more than half uh, of respondents just a few years ago uh, said Israel. And now they're saying Palestinians. And, you know, th- there's no doubt in my mind that that's because of Israel's sharp turn towards the right and that, you know, Democrats are looking at that and saying, you know, this is this this is. This is not the country that we thought we were supporting. And, uh, you know, we, we're, we're not as favorable to that. That being said, um, as we just saw, as you mentioned, you know, Eric Adams just went to Israel before just last week. You had uh, the, the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, led a Democratic delegation to Israel that was just falling all over itself, fawning over yes. uh, meeting with Netanyahu. They did not meet with the leaders of the of the protest movement, mm-hmm. uh, which Adams did. But but which yeah. which shows that Adams is a little smarter, I think, than, about this than uh, than uh, Jeffries. But but uh, they were just gushing with praise and Israel's vibrant democracy and this and that. And and um, I, I mean, it was frankly obscene. Considering what the you know you don't have to be following this issue closely to have seen the news coming out of Israel all year long, uh, in terms of the violence in the West Bank, in terms of the things that that ministers in Netanyahu's government are saying about uh, about just outright racist statements about Arabs, um, yes. the 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 advocacy of violence, uh, the 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 protection of, of of settlers as they as they you know are assaulting Palestinians. Um, this has all been on the news. It's not you don't have to be an expert to have seen it. And and Democratic voters have seen it. The thing that I think we still have to overcome is what APAC knows and understands is that the voters may not like this, but they're not going to change their votes because of it. Because what's the option? You can vote for Republicans. They're worse, much worse. Um you know, they believe that no matter what Israel does, no matter how many Palestinians they kill, they are completely justified, uh, whether because of white supremacy or because God said so. Um, take your pick, but, but you're not going to change their minds on something. So you, you can't switch over to Republicans. And APEC still has a lot of money and has now really stepped full force into campaign financing. So the political actions of Democrats are lagging way, way behind these poll numbers. But there's only so long that that can be sustained. Mm. Eventually, people... Uh, you know, when, when the when the issue is so overwhelming and it is going to only this is only going to get worse, 
for for Israel in the Democratic Party, uh, especially because Netanyahu and the right wingers have literally spat in the face of Democrats and particularly of Joe Biden. Uh, they repeatedly insulted Americans. Uh, recently, you had uh, the Anachai Chikli, who uh, was was assigned to the New York Consulate of Israel. This is a man who has has made a career out of denigrating American Jews and uh, American liberals, and and was photographed, you know, just holding up his middle fingers at uh, in response to a question about Joe Biden. So this oh. this is not a uh, this is not a uh, it's not Israeli a winning government position. that's going to win it back. Yeah, exactly. And you know, on the other, you know, on the flip side, Republicans love it. Right. And, and Republicans um, will support this wholeheartedly. And so what Netanyahu has, whether consciously or not done, is completely scrapped the idea of bipartisan support of Israel and gone to embrace the Republican Party, which he's always had much more affinity for going back to the 1990s. Uh, but uh, Democrats are just basically, you know, shaming themselves um, by by continuing to kowtow. And that goes right up to the president. Uh, you know, Joe Biden yeah, has been just as big a part of this problem as Jeffries or any of the other congressional Democrats. So, um, you know, it, it, it is unfortunate. It, but as much as you know, the American public has always uh, poll after poll has always said has always reflected that they want to see the United States be even handed. Uh, in this conflict. They want to see the United States take both sides seriously and find uh, help them find a peaceful solution. This has always been what the, the American public wants, and it's never been the practical policy of the United States, no matter what they say on paper. Um, but this kind of, you know, what, but now that we're seeing so much more sympathy for the Palestinians among Democrats, there's only so long that 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 can be sustained, assuming that people, frankly, like myself and and you know other advocates for Palestinian rights, uh, continue to create political pressure around it. Political pressure, you know, you can have so much money, and all the money and the political power. Well, political power comes really, I mean, from the people, and the reason they try to raise so mm -hmm. much money is to convince voters. But a voters, right. especially Democratic voters, who, as you say, most Democratic voters know that opposition to apartheid is in the best interest of Israelis as Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's yeah. that's pretty big. And what, what makes you say that? What makes you come to that conclusion? What have you seen? Well, sort of what I said, uh, said before, if you're an Israeli, I mean, uh, you may have democracy. You may have, you know, the Israel, Israel has, you know, you go to Israel, it, it looks mostly like a European country. Uh, it's got a fairly high standard of living. You know, people, people are doing fairly well. And yet... Um, there is a palpable sense of tension in the country, of fear. There uh, always is. You know, you know, Israelis will be the first one to tell you. Well, we we never know when a terrorist attack is going to come. Right. There, there's there is no way to have a uh, a nice, quiet, pleasant life uh, while you're oppressing another people. It, it, it ultimately you're going to be looking over your shoulder. Ultimately, you're going to worry about what does what is tomorrow going to bring. Um, and you have to also think about, uh, you know, we're seeing things now uh, as as Israel has gone farther and farther to the right, which is, again, inevitable when you deny people's rights that become you either take steps to reverse that or it gets more and more entrenched and, and, and worse and worse. 
uh, and we're seeing we're seeing things like Israel's credit rating being being uh. Uh, lowered. We're seeing companies that you know. Israel loved to used to love to pride itself on being the quote unquote startup nation, but now capital is not flowing into Israel the way it used to because people are worried about where the what what's going to happen with their investments. Um, and so here so in America, here sorry to interrupt, yeah. but here in America, more Democrats are. You're thinking in 2023, you know, as a year of big change, more Democrats are waking up to the reality that you know this apartheid isn't working it's not keeping israel safe and that uh it that's inter- it takes a while for american voters to to realize things about foreign policy a long time i mean but it, it, if it's we see evidence perhaps that this is starting to happen that maybe the people are ahead of the politicians on this yeah i i mean i think when we're talking about Issues that that you know where where human rights are at the core. I think the people pretty much are pretty much always ahead of the politicians on uh-huh, on uh-huh. those issues. I think uh-huh. that we we you know and, and polling tends to bear that out. You'd be surprised. You know, we're always surprised. Look how much support you know uh, people have. You know how people, for example, just you know Americans have long uh, had an issue with Saudi Arabia. Uh, even while uh-huh. Biden and Trump and you know one after another are are cozying up to them, yeah. uh, pe- you know people look at them and they say this is a brutal dictatorship. You know this is not the partners we want to have. Um, having said that, they also don't do a whole lot about it because right. most people and and this is you know this is true everywhere. This is not just Americans. It's and, and it's perfectly natural. Most people are worried about feeding their kids. Right. Most people, you know, that's that's that at the top of their agenda, not what's happening to Palestinians. And that is completely understandable. Um, that being said, it's still, uh, you know, there are other ways that this manifests as it becomes worse and worse, as I, you know, as I was alluding to with, with you know, the, you know, uh, international investment and credit ratings and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, there, but I, I, but I think ultimately what we saw and what we, we saw this again, when we look back at South Africa in the 80s, uh, you know, movement I was a part of, um, even all the way back then, uh, what we saw was that that sort of thing was also happening. But what really motivated what got people eventually finally out in the streets and into Washington to say, stop supporting this apartheid regime was just the fact that it's wrong. And I think right. I think that's one of the things that we're seeing in that Gallup poll. We're seeing more and more people just recognizing this is wrong. This is it is not OK for a Palestinian to live their entire life with no hope of uh, the things that we all strive for, you know, a home and a family and a nice, quiet, a, good, a decent job and, a, you know, not having to worry about where my next meal is coming from. All of those things. Why should why should just being born a Palestinian uh, mean that you don't have, you know, uh, legitimate hopes of that happening? And, and you don't if you live under an apartheid regime. So I think people see that and I think people just know that's wrong. And the more and more people see it and the more and more people recognize the wrongness of it, the more and more political momentum will be built behind it. Well, maybe I'm still a little bit naive, but, you know, as bad as Trumpism is and racism and white supremacy and, for example, I mean, Jewish supremacy, too, uh, mm-hmm. people care about what's right. They do care. I yeah. swear they do care about what's right. How much they that's care, true. that's another question. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Mitchell Plitnik, who is a, a political analyst and writer and president of Rethinking Foreign Policy. 
And he, he's suggesting, and what we're talking about here, is what he says that, quote, there are strong indications that 2023 is going to be looked back as a landmark year and indeed a turning point, Palestine and Israel. Another uh, point of new significance, perhaps this year, is, as you point out, those who do not sympathize with the Palestinians skew heavily older uh, and I can yeah. tell you that from what I know, too. What does mm -hmm. that indicate for Democratic politicians in the near-term future? Well, I think, I think there's a few things there. I think one of them is clearly, uh, you know, obviously those people are going to age out. Uh, and I, what, we're, what we're seeing uh, is that uh, the, the, young, the, the younger generation, let's say, you know, from, I'm, I'm from, I was born in 1966. So you have, you know, I guess that's generation X. Um, you know, people, people, <laughs> people of my generation uh, tended to be much more sympathetic to Israel, but not as much as the generation before uh, the, the, the baby boomers who, who, you know, kind of grew up with the, the, you know, the very fledgling Israeli state that was not strong, that, that was, you know, that was, that could legitimately say that, that it had, you know, had, you know, real fears about its ability to defend itself. It didn't have the kind of American protection that it does now. Um, I think, uh, so, so as much as, so this, the, the really old folks um, come from that perception of Israel. And that's the Israel that they think of, you know, in, in, in their guts, even if they know it's not like that anymore. Mm. So that's the, that's the image that they have of Israel. And that I think makes them more sympathetic. My generation already didn't quite see Israel that way, but still had a lot of sympathy. I think as the, the generations keep getting, uh, as we move forward through yeah. generations, they grew up with a stronger Israel that didn't need this kind of special treatment, uh, if it ever did. Uh, and mm -hmm. and didn't have these excuses as illegitimate as they may have been for the way it treated Palestinians, um, and I, and so that is that that's going to change on the the voter side. But I think even more importantly, we're going to see people come into office. Uh, we're going to see people who who get into uh, key positions in the Democratic Party uh, and in the Jewish community, crucially. Uh, that that also recognize that the kind of politics that Israel uh, has enjoyed in the United States, where it could basically get away with murder, uh, literally, yeah, um, sure. that 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 is not doing anyone any good. It's not good policy. It's not it's not really good for Israelis, even though it may seem that way on the surface. And it's obviously unjust. It is obviously you know it's bad for it's bad for the Palestinians, and it's bad. For any kind of international system right. that would be, you know, one of international justice and one where where we hold human rights as and and you know and fair play basically uh, as as a value in the world, not just in our own country. And it's true, as you mentioned, uh, international pressure. Israel cares very much about international uh, mm -hmm. opinion, and it's. You know, there's Democratic voters here in the United States, which they got to look over their shoulder. Uh, you know, APAC people have to look over their shoulder. But there's also world opinion. And I read just mm -hmm. uh, today about the Freedom Flotilla Coalition uh, has a flagship mm -hmm. vessel, the Handala, which concluded mm -hmm. its first stage of the 2023 
Gaza Freedom Flotilla voyage this past week mm-hmm. when it arrived in Oslo, Norway. According to the coalition, mm-hmm. the, the Handala visited 12 ports in a number of European countries over the past two months carrying the Palestinian flag and raising awareness yeah. of its mission to end the illegal Israeli blockade of Gaza. So do you, as we look at 2023, do you see evidence mm-hmm. that there is increasing global support for the Palestinian cause that may actually be coming together with some tangible new political momentum? I think I think that um, we've been seeing this building up really uh, for the past 15 or so years. And I think we see it in the uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Yeah. Um, the, the BDS movement has grown. It has global support. Um, and I think crucially, it uh, it it it. It spreads a certain message. Uh, you know, I, I've always seen the BDS movement as one that, you know, eventually it might actually have an impact economically on Israel. It, it clearly has not mm. uh, to this to this point. But but you know, it's really it, it hasn't been around all that long. It took it took a long time for the boycott uh, movement against South Africa oh, to have real economic impact there too. It took decades, Good point. and I think this would take decades. But I think in the meanwhile, it is educating people and saying, you know, we're boycotting Israel in response to a call from Palestinians in Palestine. Uh, and we're doing it for these reasons because of, of what, you know, how Israel is treating them. And I think it is educating people. And I think people are getting the idea that this is not OK. And I think we're seeing, you know, one of the things I think that we've seen as a result of it is that these are things, you know, the, the conditions for Palestinians are not things that Israel can legitimately argue are security measures. Um, there, there's just no way you can say that holding, uh, holding literally millions of people without any rights whatsoever, and Palestinians have no rights guaranteed them. Um, uh, by Israel, which is ultimately the, the, the country that controls all of them, uh, who live in uh, East Jerusalem, West Bank, Israel, and Gaza, um, that that can't be justified by you know some sort of geopolitical calculus uh-huh. or security reasons. Defense, and so yeah. the right, and so the 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 response of Israel and its supporters has now become almost every time. They have gone to their their sort of uh, ultimate ultimate weapon, which is if you criticize Israel, you're anti-Semitic. Right. Uh, they are literally. Uh, this has literally now come to almost every criticism of Israel, um, no matter how mild, uh, when it comes to the Palestinians. If you say anything about Palestinian rights, you're being anti-Semitic. So I think when you see that kind of desperation, uh, where does that come from? It comes from the fact that they have no other cards to play. And again, that's because we're seeing uh, sympathy for the Palestinians finally breaking through um, this, you know, what we have, which is a, a, a mythology, uh, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, there is a sort of mythology that's been built up very consciously over decades about Israel being this liberal democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East. And right. yes, we, we, we sometimes have to have harsh measures against the Palestinians, but we do everything we can to give them as much freedom as possible. These are just sure. things that are not true. Right. And, and people are now seeing that. Uh, part of it is the internet age. Part of it is the fact that that videos are all over, right. you know, uh, the web and Twitter and and YouTube and wherever people can see what life is like for Palestinians in a way they couldn't before. That's part of it. Part of it is just you know people. Uh, you, you can only sustain that kind of illusion for so long. 
And I, I'm going to interject a little bit here. I am Jewish, and I, the fact that I'm Jewish and I believe in Jewish principles and traditions means I am against racism, I am for justice, and you know, to criticize Israel for its treatment is not in any way anti-Semitic. There, I said it. Yeah. Huh. Uh, another, there's, there's also the world, you know, geography, uh, geopower is changing over the mm -hmm. years. Another factor that's yeah. emerging in 2023 as an indication of things changing is the role of China. They yeah. brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Ram, which, frankly, I never mm -hmm. thought was possible because those guys don't like each other. You say, and they're real competitors. You say China is a wild card that, quote, China mm -hmm. places great value on its prestige on the international stage. While it won't mm -hmm. risk getting into the quagmire that is Israel and Palestine, they could very well act on the periphery with the intent to find ways to be a bigger part of the end game. What what do you mean by that? Well, um, so there's there's a couple of things here. I mean, I think the the, the Saudi Iran deal that China brokered is very is very instructive. The way they did it, and, and by the way, you know, they, all they really did they they didn't make peace between the two of them. There's still a lot of tensions between those two countries, but they reestablished diplomatic relations, which uh -huh. had only been broken seven years ago. Uh. So it's not like this has been going on forever. Um, this was this uh. was not an old that that can, you know the 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 tension and competition are uh, between them are old are older anyway. Uh, certainly since 1979, the Iranian Revolution. But the uh, this particular deal uh, was just all, all it did was reestablish uh, diplomatic and friendly relations. And now you know Iranians uh, Iranian diplomats can go to Saudi Arabia and vice versa, and, and Iranians can you know feel free to make the Hajj to 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 Mecca. Uh, thing, things of that, uh -huh. things of that nature. Um, so, it, but it, but it absolutely reduced tensions in the Gulf. Um, the 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 chances of Saudi Arabia wanting to see any sort of conflict involving Iran got greatly diminished, and you know that was a very big deal. But China actually didn't do a ton to make that happen. Uh -huh. This was actually Iraq that had been working mediating Iraq? between the two for several yeah for several years. It was it was mostly behind the scenes. Um, but Iraq was trying to bring the two of them to, together just to reestablish relations. And then as once Iraq had done most of the heavy lifting, China came in at the end and kind of sealed the deal because China has very, very good relations with both of those countries. China also has very good relations with Israel. Um, and China, China is much less uh, adventurous, we might want to say, than the United States. The China China looks at what the United States got itself into in the Middle East. It wants no part of that. Yeah. It wants no part of having to constantly, you know, mediate between this one and that one, and and, and get itself locked into these quagmires um, and and pulled into conflicts. Uh, China does not want to be that, but they do want to see the Middle East uh, stabilized. Um, they are an enormous market. They're, an, they're right. you know, they're, they're they're a huge market for for Middle East oil. They are a huge market for technology and the kind of exports that Israel thrives on. Um, there's a lot of potential for partnership. In fact, Israel has long wanted greater partnership with China and has only uh, pulled back because the United States insisted yeah. uh, that they that they pull back on a number of occasions. The United States has told them to you know not not cut China off or anything, but you know just just 
hold off, you know, and stop, don't, don't go so deep in with them. And up till now, Israel has, has relented. But again, as I think, you know, more and more Americans would like to see the United States get out of uh, this position of supporting Israeli apartheid, uh, we're going to see Israel decide that, you know, China, India, um, and, and, uh, and, and uh, other countries uh, are more important uh-huh. for it, to, you know, for it to to expand its trade with, to expand its now. You know, to be clear, no country can replace the United States. No country would want to replace the United States. No country would want to be supplying Israel uh, and and taking the kind of diplomatic hits on the world stage for Israel that the U.S. takes. They, no country wants to give Israel four billion dollars a year for nothing. Um, that that is something China looks at and says, "U.S., you want to do that? Go ahead. <laughs> we're we're not going to compete with you in that." But uh, but but uh, China does want to see stability, and China uh-huh. also wants to make itself uh, to enhance its own status in the world as a leader. Um, and you know, this Iran Saudi deal did that. Um, it, it it really it really made China look like uh, uh, a a much more and and you know. It's not a it's not an incorrect perception that that China looked like uh, a real you know, a real leader on yeah. the world stage. Um, they were able to do something that the United States absolutely could not possibly have done because the United States can't talk to Iran the way uh-huh. China can. Yeah, uh-huh. they can talk to Saudi Arabia, but you know, the U.S. has has always pursued um, giving countries weapons. We give you arms and you do what we say. Right. That's been the U S US model. Yeah. China, it, China, China uses diplomacy and business cooperation. Um, and you know, there, there's downsides to that too. I mean, we've seen the belt and road initiative and we've seen some of the ways that, that China has intentionally gotten African countries and other countries indebted to it. Um, you know, that, that's not, it, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to paint a picture of China being this benevolent, uh, right. uh, you know, altruistic country that's no. just doing things, you know, they they have their own interests too, and they are in their own way an imperial power and are trying to establish their, uh, their position on the world stage as, as, you know, right next to the United States. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's not. It's not out of the goodness of their heart, but they have a, a real reason to want to see Israel-Palestine peace. Um, as I say, as I say in the article, they're not going to go and 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 invest huge amount of diplomatic capital on it uh. until they see that it's really going to pay off. Uh, but they can, you know, get the. Um, uh, the uh, Mahmoud Abbas recently went to China and signed a bunch of trade deals. Israel uh, wants to uh-huh. expand its trade with with China. It can use a lot of that to to try and you know create conditions so that there can be an agreement that it can come in at the end and sort of say, hey, look, you know, we're gonna we're, we'll we'll finish this off much as they did with Iran and Saudi Arabia. So they have a lot freer hand. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Mitchell Plitnik, who's uh, written that perhaps 2023 will be a big change, a major turning point in uh, Israel-Palestinian relations. So we're looking at uh, what factors may address that. China doesn't have the baggage that the U.S. has. They have a, a lot more freedom, and they're they're certainly, uh, you know, they don't have to repeat the mistakes that that we made. I don't know if they could be a broker between Israel and the Palestinians. That doesn't seem like something that they would stick their neck out. But may, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? 
I think they, I think China could um, find ways. I don't think they would try. I don't think they would try to like, uh, you know, start at the ground level and, and, and start trying to bring in, uh, you know, frameworks for negotiations and frameworks for settlements the way the U.S. has. I don't think they would do that. I do think they would try and find ways to incentivize both sides to work together. Uh, I think they would try to find business, you know, uh-huh. mostly, you know, mo- mostly using economic uh, incentives. Sure. Uh, and I think they would, you know, there isn't much they could do with the Palestinians because the Palestinians, A, don't have much <laughs> much to spend for one thing, but also right. it, it's not the Palestinians that are the issue here, it's the Israelis. And it's incentivizing Israel to take the steps necessary to change the situation on the ground. Um, I think that, you know, given the right Israeli government and if China saw real potential, they could, uh, you know, find ways to facilitate uh, joint business uh, ventures. That's been tried before. It hasn't worked great. But mm. uh, but China would be doing it in a different sort of framework. The, the, the way it's been tried in the past has been through this sort of neoliberal framework that really centered Israel. Um, and I think China would be able to do it and by bringing in many other countries. You know, this is part of the, the BRICS expansion that we just saw this morning uh, and, and having those kinds of connections that the U.S. just doesn't have um, in, in terms of, of relationships that they could bring in. I mean, you yeah, know, this is very broad speculation, yeah. but. But China playing a greater role in the region is probably a good thing, uh, just in the sense that, you know, the United States needs to be pushed out. Um, the United States, that, that's really my main focus there, because the United States is and, and this is this is, you know, it, it's just sort of a natural conclusion. The United States cannot be uh, an honest broker between Israel and the Palestinians for the very simple reason that the United States has a special relationship with Israel. It, it's as if, you know, if my brother is having a dispute with somebody I barely know, I can't be the mediator in that because it's my brother and this person I don't give a damn about. Um, that That's more or less the, the same position the United States is in. And yet Israel and the United States insist that that's the only right. framework that, that is possible. That has to change. And I think that is something China can change if it wants to. China and Europe and the world in general. And I'm starting to see mm-hmm. some changes. You know, it's not like the U.S. is holding all the cards anymore. Those, that's uh, starting to, to right. slip away. And, and here in America, one of the things that may be changing a turning point in 2023 is how voting Democrats feel that they care mm-hmm. about uh, rights for Palestinians. Uh, and mm-hmm. I always try to end on a positive note. However, <laughs> there's reason to consider that the changes this year may be a positive. They may be a positive turning point. But you caution: quote the seeds planted in 2023 could also have deeply negative effects, mm-hmm. such as right. So as I mentioned earlier, I think the biggest risk of what we're seeing now is that Israel throws all caution to the wind and really full full out launches uh, an ethnic cleansing program in the West Bank. Yeah, that could happen. Um, I, 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 that is not outside the realm of possibility. It is certainly the kind of thing that that its more far right elements want. Yeah. Um, it, it is something that probably the more you know the more strategic minded among Israeli leaders do not want because I think they recognize what that how that would play out in in Europe and in the United States. Um, I think that that's one danger. Um, another danger is there's there's always. Um, you know, there's always the possibility that Israel finds ways to turn circumstances to its own advantage. 
Um, you know, people mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. back in, if you go back to uh, uh, 19, yeah, 1990, 1991, when the first Gulf War happened, and then you had the Madrid conference, which George H.W. Bush absolutely pulled out all the stops and forced Israel to attend. And this was seen as this horrible development for Israel. They're going to force Israel into making concessions, et cetera, et cetera. And what Israel did was basically, you know, out of that, out of that conference emerged the Oslo framework and Israel uh, found ways to change that framework around. So then it simply became a framework for facilitating the occupation and getting the Palestinians to take a lot of the security burden off of Israel. That was really what ended up coming out of there. So Israel is, uh, has, been, has proven itself very adaptable um, and very clever about cha- you know, taking, uh, taking circumstances that seem like they're going to challenge them and turn them to their advantage. I can't say what that would be exactly, right. but, but we've seen it too often in the past for me to discount that possibility. So you know, I, think, I think that's possible. Uh, there's, you know, there is also the, the, the grimmer possibility for us here in the United States that, that um, you know, all of that pro-Israel campaign financing, um, which, you know, APAC is now an actual PAC, which it right. wasn't until a couple right. of years ago. Right. So they have two, they have two PACs, actually, um, that, that got heavily involved in 2022 and, you know, made some waves. But I think that was a lot of those, a lot of that was, was sort of trial balloons. And I think we're going to see in 2024, they're going to be much more strategic uh. and concerted. So we'll see what that means. And that could end up also being a major advantage for Republicans. Uh, if Democrats do start following, uh, if Democrats do start following uh, the, the, the will of their voters and, you know, per- perhaps start really thinking about one of the things that's in the air right now that's never been before, conditioning uh, or even ending military aid to Israel. These are things that, that, are, that are actually being talked about, including by supporters of Israel. Um, sure. That so if that happens, I mean that APAC would go all out against that, no matter whose idea it was. But that could lead them to put to you know to end their own bipartisanship, just as sure. the Netanyahu government has, and shift their resources over to the Republicans. And I think that is a scary thought for anyone oh, yeah. in in the United States. <laughs> oh my goodness, it certainly is, especially with today's Republican Party. Uh, exactly. I just I, what's the if people want to read more of what you do, you seem to know your stuff. Mm-hmm. I must say. Uh, rethinking foreign policy. What's the link on uh, that internet thingy? Yeah, that's <laughs> you can find it uh, just as just as it says. Rethinking foreign policy, all one word. Rethinking foreign policy dot org. Okay. Um, and you can also follow me on on Twitter at mj plitnik. P-L-I-T-N-I-C-K. Thank you so much. And and uh, there are a few years where big changes happen, and there's reason to think, as you described, that this may be one of them. Thank you so much for being with us, and hope it's a positive yeah, anytime. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. 
subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.